previously on the Enneagram journey. Being a four and being committed to authenticity, I do worry that it often comes across as, hey guys, look at me, you know, when really it, it's often a deep commitment that I have that I, I feel compelled to yeah. live out of, you know. To me, it needs to be dealt with in an appropriate manner. Shame. 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 Shame, shame, shame. Shame on you. Shame, shame, shame. Shame on you. This was serious, but it turned into something fun. Thing where a lot of people will say, you know when you found your number, when you feel like kind of squeamish. And I'm like, oh no, I love that I'm a four. Right. <laughs> it's great. But the thing that really got to me was that piece. Cause I was like, there's never been, or I have never experienced language that described how I have felt since I was a little girl. Welcome back everyone to the Enneagram Journey podcast with the Enneagram Godmother, Suzanne Stabile. Today's guest is Kurt Thompson, Enneagram 4, author of two incredible books, one that you may have heard mentioned a time or two here on the podcast, The Soul of Shame, and his new book, The Soul of Desire. We're going to talk about both of them. We're going to talk about confessional communities and the four questions we should be asking ourselves. We're going to talk about languishing and longing. Before we talk about all of that, we're going to talk about the Enneagram Journey Toward Wholeness book and podcast tour. Next year, 10 spots all over the country. Suzanne is going to be teaching all day on Saturday. And the Friday night before, we're going to be having a live podcast. Stops include Portland, San Francisco, Houston, Dallas, Austin, Denver, Richmond, Charlotte, Kansas City, Birmingham. Come out, join us. All those dates and locations and more information will be available on the Enneagram Journey website as well as life in the trinity ministry.com where you can sign up and get your tickets and uh, join in the community it's going to be a great time and now let's hop in for a great time with suzanne and kurt thompson hello suzanne hello holy tololi you know looking back on my years at telemachus i have three or four Things that I'll treasure always, and meeting you is certainly one of them. Oh, my goodness. My word. What a very kind thing to say. Thank it's you. I'm, I... Totally true. I, I can tell you uh, the chairs we were sitting in. You know how people say, uh, I don't feel seen, or other people say, I see you, or, you know, that whole language. I don't use mm. that language generally. Mm. But mm. that day, I mm. I felt seen and known by mm. you. I've told Joe mm. that over and over. Mm. Wow! Um, now there's a way to start a conversation. <laughs> My goodness. Well, I'm. I can I just say I'm. I'm just so it's it's such an honor to be invited to do this with you. I mean, this is. I mean, heavens. And I'm. I'm just. Uh, I'm. I'm thrilled to have the chance and to. To learn from you and to and to you know kind of explore this this stuff that we're doing together and um there you have it i'm just yeah. i'm just really grateful to be here so thank you for inviting me thank you for saying yes i i've already told you that uh it it was an honor to get to read the manuscript for your new book and mm. i kind of want to talk about shame first and then we can move mm -hmm. into that I got out the manuscript this morning. When I got it, I ran it off because I'm a paper and pen gal. You know, I don't uh -huh. use my computer unless I have to. And yeah. um, I got it out to look at it yesterday. And I, I wrote so many notes mm. of things that rang true to me. Mm. And so uh, in case anybody hasn't heard about your new book yet, um, I... I also think the cover is beautiful, by the way. I just turned around and look at it again. Okay, okay. Can I just say this? Like, I just, I just want to say, like, I had, 
I am so stinking proud of the book, like just the, the book, like right. the, the thing, the thing. And I can say this unabashedly because like I had nothing to do with it. Right. Like, I'm like, I'm, I'm not that, not like that's not my, you know, that's not my lane. I, I, I was, uh, InterVarsity Press is, I mean, the folks there, their market or design uh, yeah. team, I, uh, it was, I was amazed. I, I was amazed. I tell you, that is a beautiful cover to say the soul of desire. Mm. It's um, mm. a beautiful cover. Yeah. And I have so many things I want to talk to you about in terms of connecting shame to the Enneagram and mm. desire mm. to the Enneagram and mm. room for all of that. <laughs> um, yeah. One of my favorite stories that, uh, Joel edits this, so he may take it out, but one of my favorite way, stories. Hi, Joel. Hi. <laughs> nice to finally meet you. I, I loved your book. I haven't read The Soul of Desire yet, but The Soul of Shame was uh, mm. very eye-opening to me. Mm. Mm. All right. Well, the story he's going to tell us is actually Joel's yeah. story, so uh, perhaps he'll be willing to tell it because Joel's an Enneagram 7, and after thinking, I don't, I don't know anything about shame. I don't know what you're talking about. And then reading your book and recognizing that actually he knew a lot about it. He just didn't know how to name it. Joel, mm. tell him what you said, please, to me or to Whitney. You said to, to the inner circle, I can hardly wait. <laughs> yeah. So I read, I went with the double dive. I read The Soul of Shame and then followed that up and chased it with Shameless by Nadia Bowles-Weber. And uh -huh. And so, so then with my, my Monday morning group, I told them, I was like, man, I'm so excited for the next opportunity I have to, to deal with grieving. That's what it was. And I was like, I can't wait to get to grieve in real time. Like I'm all jacked up about it because I'm going to crush it this next time. I'm not just going to carry it around for forever. Right on. It's fascinating. It's just fascinating. My first question for you is before we start to parse this out into Enneagram groups, Mm -hmm. Do you think it's possible that you could not have written these two books in reverse order? That shame and all that you have been able to uh, pull together, articulate, understand, share about shame had to come first? Or have you always had the soul of desire in the back of your head as an author? And have you known that that was coming? Well, uh, my answer, I, I, I think I, well, I'll, I'll just tell you a little, just briefly about the process. I, okay. you know, I signed this, uh, you know, university press offered me a two book deal when I yeah. did the soul of shame. And of course it was flattering because like, you're an author, like, well, well, like, I don't know if I'm an author, but you know, at the time you're, you're, yeah. you're you've written a book and like, who knows? Oh my, a two book deal. That's just be awesome. Um, uh, I, I wish somebody had alerted me and said, hey, Kurt, if you sign a multi-book deal for anything, it's always a good idea to know what your second or third book is already going to be about. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm thinking about like recording artists who've signed multi-record deals and like they've got like, they got 10 songs and that's what they got. And they do one album and now they're like, well, we need like in 15 months, we need your second album. Like, but I don't got any songs. Like mm -hmm. I, I don't like, I, so now I got to like make stuff up as I go because I have a, a, a contract to fulfill. And of course, university press was completely, they, they were, they were kind to be on measure. They, there was no pressure. There was no nothing from, from them. There was no deadline from, it was all banging around in my head, but I did not have an idea for a second book. I was just like, oh my gosh, a two book deal. How wonderful. And then I'm thinking like, oh crap. Like yeah. oh, here, here it is. It probably took me uh, the better part of three years to finally gain traction on what the topic was going to be, mm -hmm. like to really for it to um, uh, kind of crystallize and mm -hmm. become become clear. And and even as I began to write it, it was not fully formed. Even as uh, even as I began to write it, I, and I, I, I so I, I think to answer your question. Uh, I think I, th I do think that these two books, uh, I, I, and, and now I would say, you know, the, the, the three books, Anatomy of the Soul, The Soul of Shame, The Soul of Desire, uh, they, they probably do, um, unintentionally, but they probably do form a bit of a three-part series. Mm -hmm. And I know that um, 
the writing of The Soul of Shame then led to me having to work through a bunch of stuff that the book talks about, but that I hadn't actually worked through. Uh -huh. So it's like, oh gosh, I'm just going to stop writing things because you know that like the, you know, the poop is, is going to fly after you're That's done right. writing it. Yeah. And so then I, I think I, I did have, you know, this about four years ago now it was, I had this encounter in Pasadena with Mako Fujimura in which no small amount of uh, the, the Im imaginative work that became the soul of desire started to, I think, mix together with my own, um, where, where I was in my own journey at the time. Um, in, in this time, uh, you know, I've, I've laid to rest the third of my three brothers who died from cancer. I have, mm. um, uh, had some, you know, just some, I was in the middle of, of, of a professional development, um, strangeness, uh, crisis might be too strong a word, but trying to figure some things out that I wasn't all to say there were parts of me that are, were probably somewhere between the ages of about four and 15 years of age mm -hmm. that were shut that have shown up in the last five years. Mm -hmm. And in many respects, the soul desire, uh, became kind of a, kind of a, a working out of a lot of that stuff. And I'm even literally like in the last six months to this day, mm -hmm. there's stuff that is happening such that I would say, it, it would appear that the progression of how these books got written was a reflection of, you know, in, in no small part, well, some of my own personal journey mm -hmm. um, toward healing. And, uh, and, and, and what I can say is that I, I really do believe that the soul of desire is uh, uh, upon reflection, again, without it being intentional ahead of time, is provides like a, a, an even more robust response to the last part of the soul of shame, where we talk about the cloud of witnesses and we talk about community, mm -hmm. which all I think is absolutely necessary, but not sufficient for the conversation. Because mm -hmm. I think that we like community, yes, we were made for that. And it becomes clear we were made to make things. And this notion that we weren't just made to make things uh, of mediocrity, like we, we long to, you know, whether it's relationships, whether it's artistic expression, whether it's curriculum, whether it's schools or whether it's furniture or whatever it is, right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whether it's, you know, your podcast that, that, that right now that, that people are going to listen to and are going to be moved and touched and changed. Whether it's like the, the whole body of work that you do, Joel, the, the whole, like as, you, like as you produce this, like there is an artistry to all of that, that is a reflection of what it means for us to bear the image of God. And there's so much about how shame wants to operate out of this and, and, and the way we want to tend to respond to it typically um, from a left hemispheric, I'm going to fix, you know, diagnose and mm -hmm. diagnose the, the, the disease, uh, pathologize it, uh, treat it, solve it, move on to the next thing, mm -hmm. keeping it as opposed to I'm going to be present with it. I'm going to be with you. And in the middle of our presence, Mm -hmm. you know that uh that whole notion of when jesus says where two or more of you are gathered mm -hmm. it like he has no intention of that being some kind of static convention yeah right it's not like three chairs happen to be sitting in the room like if we're gathered together he is mm -hmm. he's working yeah he's on the loose with delight and demands and discipline and all the things. Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, didn't, yeah. All good. So we have a um, tagline um, for the MICA Center, our center here in Dallas, which is a place for solitary work that can't be done alone. <laughs> oh my gosh. How beautiful is that? Yeah, it's pretty great. And it's, it's getting better. Because now I'm going to say um, we have a tagline for our ministry here, which is a place for solitary work that can't be done alone. And I've added a quote from Kurt Thompson's new book, which is community opens our eyes and our hearts. Mm. 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 And mm. I, mm. in reading mm. that line 
was aware that sometimes I have oversold community as a place, a group where someone holds your feet to the fire. Hmm. Because you, hmm. you know, we make all kinds of promises to ourselves about work that we're going to do <clears throat> that hmm. we then don't have the discipline to do. Yeah, you could talk to my wife about that and she would fill you in on the things that I have told her that I was going to do that I don't do. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, everybody's going to read the Bible starting on January 1st and then they get to Leviticus and they're not. So everybody does that and everybody joins the Why to Lose Weight on January 1st too. It's a big day. It's a big day. <laughs> That's right. January 1st, it's like, man, I'm tired of carrying all this like like responsibility for everybody who's going to change the world on my, on today, my day. Yeah. 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 It's the day. So golly, we have shame hmm. everywhere, hmm. Hmm. everywhere. I, hmm. I wish that I was more aware of other cultures so I could speak to this culture doesn't seem to have it like we do or these people don't seem to be uh, caught in shame. Mm -hmm. I just want to set the table for a minute so that you know that there's a distinction from which I'm speaking in Enneagram language because for five sixes and sevens, they're the thinking triad or the head triad, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And just under the surface for them is fear. Mm -hmm. Eights, nines, and ones the gut triad just under the surface or waiting in the wings is anger mm -hmm. and fear is what five sixes and sevens all carry in common and anger is what eights nines and ones carry in common mm -hmm. shame is what twos threes and fours carry mm -hmm. and you know I, i'm a, a a card carrying average two most of the time occasionally <laughs> i have some really healthy moments and <laughs> I, th I think the reason that I felt seen is because I knew from some of the things that you said when I heard you speak in Florida that you understood that being adopted means you start with shame. Mm -hmm. However, I have come to believe from reading all three of your books that shame was intended to get my attention, but not to walk with me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that accurate? I think that's a really, I think that's a really beautiful way of uh, an, an additional and really beautiful way of articulating what I've tried to convey and what, what I, what I believe the, the neurobiology would suggest, and uh, and I think also what biblical anthropology would suggest, mm -hmm. that it is like many things, right? Like like any kind of uncomfortable neurophysiologic response to anything, whether it's you know putting my finger on a hot burner, or it's the guilt that I may feel by the time I'm somewhere you know between four and six years of age or after, because I can't really my brain doesn't really compute that mm -hmm. earlier than that. There is this fundamental sense of I, I'm having it's it's getting it's getting my attention, and of course, ideally, you know, one would have one would have wished that uh, somebody, you know, when the conversation is taking place with Eve, that somebody would have come and had a conversation with her. Somebody would have had a con you know would have joined her in that regard. Mm -hmm. And uh, because there's a problem, right? And the, and the problem is like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not just going to take the fruit from the tree for no reason. Like right. if everything is really great between me and my husband and my God and me and the animals and all the things that yeah. we're called to do here in the garden, if everything is great, like I got no emotional uh, motivation for taking the fruit. Uh -huh. Something's happening in the conversation. This is not just some logical sequence of argument that the serpent offers to her. I would, I would suggest. Sure. And I think that we see that in the text. Um, and so it, it, it gets my attention, but you're right. It is not intended to walk with me. It is intended mm -hmm. to get my attention. And I think that, um, you know, what we try to convey when we do our work with patients, or especially in these confessional communities, 
is not that uh, this work is going to eliminate shame from our diet. It doesn't mean that, well, if we, you know, at some point we'll get to a point where we will never, ever, ever feel shame again. That would be a problem because as we say, there are in fact certain actions that we take as human beings for which shame is the appropriate response. Mm -hmm. There are things for which I, if I were to do them, like shame is like, yeah, I should be ashamed of what I just did, said, thought, felt, those, those kinds of things. The question is what I do in response to it and who is with me in that process. Mm -hmm. And so as we practice, as we say, like, you know, practicing for heaven, as we are practicing, getting used to this notion that, oh, shame is part of what I'm bringing to the table every time I'm coming to the table. Mm -hmm. And the more frequently I practice naming it as it emerges, the more it becomes, you know, I, I, it, it is healed. And the more it is healed, the more comfortable I am bringing more and more of it to the table. Mm -hmm. Because I see that the outcome of exposure, the outcome of being gazed upon is not more shame, which is right. what my typical experience is, um, but actually recommissioning, regeneration, regeneration, and so forth. I've, I don't think I've ever heard you say that, Suzanne, about shame, getting your yeah. attention. Mm -hmm but then not walking with you? Is that the same for the other numbers and fear and anger for the other triads? Yes. Ideally, it wouldn't be just right there all the time going with you. That's right. Just get your attention. And then as you and Kurt are talking about, then how do I, now how do I name it and move on without it being the driver? Exactly. And, and, yeah. The next thing I thought the three of us might explore is that I have begun, I'm going to continue, I hope with even better language, to talk about allowing things to fall away instead of living in this illusion that we can make things go away. Mm -hmm. You alluded to it when you said, we'll fix it, wrap it up, done. And that's mm -hmm. never going to happen. But yeah. once we get into a position where we feel like we're in control of anger, fear, or shame, that is very problematic mm. because it energizes <laughs> it, right? Mm -hmm. And this allowing um, shame to fall away or Joel, fear for you, allowing it to fall away, but being respectful of the fact that it has something to do with how you see the world and how you experience the world. So it has value because it will always get your attention. Mm -hmm. Other things mm -hmm. get my attention sometimes and not other times. Shame gets me every time. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things, Suzanne, that I, we talk about with our, with our patients and in these confessional communities is that within most parameters, uh, you know, with the exceptions of certain conditions of major mental illness, neuropsychiatric impairment, head trauma, seizures, infections, the like, tumors. With, with those exceptions, the brain is an incredibly trustworthy organ. Now, when people come to my office and they're depressed or they're having panic disorder or even their bipolar disorder or their trauma, is collapsing them into a functional mess, they would not say, oh my gosh, like my brain is working like really, really well now. I'm really happy with the way my brain is working. Mm -hmm. I haven't been out of bed in a week. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, they would say that there's a problem with their brain. And what I would say to them is there is a problem, but the problem is not your brain. Your brain is actually doing exactly what it needs to be doing under these conditions. I don't like it when my smoke detector goes off in my kitchen when I'm cooking bacon, mm -hmm. but it is doing exactly what it is supposed to do. And when I'm depressed and I think that all I want to do is go back to the way things were six months ago, I say to the patient, actually, you don't, because wherever it was that you were six months ago is part of how it is that you're where you are now, but your brain is telling us that it is looking for help. That's what it's trying to do. It's a very trustworthy organ. It will let you know when it needs help, what kind of help it needs, what it's looking for. It will let you, it will let your, your brain, body, soul matrix will let you know this. We would say like this, you know, some might 
call this, you know, uh, th this notion of common grace, I mean, whatever the theological terms are that we want to use, this, this notion that the Spirit of God is at work and trying to get our attention, and that we would say, you know, when God breathes the breath of life into man's nostrils in Genesis 2, 7, and man becomes a living being, we can't escape it. We can't get away from the fact that we have been formed through the power of God's spirit, and that spirit is calling through our spirit back to God's spirit. And when I, in, the, in response to my trauma and my own shame, and then in response to my fear and my anger and so forth and so on, when I behave in a way that takes me further away from relationship, my brain is going to double down and try to get, you know, it's going to work even harder to get my attention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so in this regard, we would say that, you know, people would like to come in and, and, and say, like, I, I would like my psychiatric uh, help to be more like general surgery. Could you please give me anesthesia and then wake me up two hours later when the whole thing is done and I'll walk out and I'll be fine. And it's actually more like physical rehab. We're going to have you be conscious, awake, alert, attuned, and you're going to be part of the process. When I give you all those exercises, they're going to make you scream like a stuck pig, right? Mm -hmm. All these things that we're going to do. And we would say that crucifixion, notice this idea when Paul writes in Romans, what, uh, eight, this, the early parts of Romans eight, where, when he talks about putting to death, we mm -hmm. put to death the old person we put to death. There is a sense in which crucifixion, I mean, this is, this is what makes it such, such an amazing, like penetrating metaphor, right? The Romans had all kinds of ways to kill people. Sure. Like you behead them. They could put them up in a firing squad, shoot them all with arrows. No, they nail them to a cross and they let the sheer weight of their own body kill them. Mm -hmm. Like, they don't kill them. They just put three pins in their body, right? That's all they do. And they let the person's own life itself take its life from him. Mm -hmm. And there is a sense in which it's it, there. In, in that sense, it is a bit of a passive death. It's not an active death, like beheading somebody. Right. And, and to your point, Shame gets our attention, and this whole notion in the Hebrews, right, this, that Jesus, like, you know, scorning the shame, like he endured the cross, scorning its shame, this sense that he's going to look at it, and in the very presence of shame, he is going to turn his attention to his Father. In the presence of our shame, we turn our attention to the loving gaze of someone else who sees us in the presence of our shame, and what we are doing is we are not killing shame actively. We are passively allowing it to go, just as you're talking, but we're passively mm -hmm. allowing it to fade away by turning our attention to a God who is saying, I am your father. I am the one who loves you. I am the one who is pleased with you. When Jesus approaches Peter in John 21, do you love me? Do you love me? At first glance, it looks like this, you know, a somewhat kind of like, um, you know, almost quasi-accusatory inquiry, right? This yes. sounds like, well, do you love me? Well, like, obviously you don't, because otherwise, like, what happened six weeks ago? Or, like, what yeah. was up with that? Yeah, exactly. And yet you see that with, every, like, he, do, he doesn't say, do you love me? Well, I was just checking because I'm not so sure. He says, uh, yes, I do. And he's like, then feed my sheep. Almost as if he's saying, I want you, like, uh, we're bringing your shame out in here in front of everybody, right here in front of all the gang. Yeah. So we all know what we all know. So nobody's wondering. And what do you think about Peter? Like, like how's he going to lead, right? No, we're going to make it public. And now I want you to start to pay attention to me because I have work for you to do. Mm -hmm. A lot of it. I'm going to, I want you to turn your attention to me and the beauty that I have for you to create in the world. I don't want you going back to your fishing boat. I want you to come with me. And in that moment, we learn that our shame literally and neurologically, like neurobiologically, those things that have evoked shame in me historically yes. are now literally those neural networks that represent that neurophysiologic experience of shame now literally are going to be shaped by and formed by the loving gaze of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And in that way, my shame is crucified, not because I'm beheading it, but because I'm allowing it to be put to death. Mm -hmm by my paying attention to beauty and goodness who's coming for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, I have, I have 
407 questions. <laughs> so <laughs> here's, here's the first thing. Uh, Nadia Bolsweber called Joe and me and said that she would like to come to town and re record us uh, talking about forgiveness for her new book. Uh -huh. So we both said, uh -huh. great. And she was also talking about some work that she does. And she said, you know, uh, in this new thing that I'm doing online, we have a rule that people can't lead with their trauma. It's a community that meets for chapel and mm -hmm. you don't get to introduce yourself by your trauma. Mm -hmm. And she said, so I kind of would like to explore that with you too. I said, great, but you need to know that it has been my lifelong struggle to not introduce myself in this way. Mm -hmm. Hi, my name's Suzanne. I was adopted because my mother didn't want me. I was a foreign exchange student at 16. I was sexually abused, gained a lot of weight, never lost it, struggled with weight my whole life, married the wrong person, divorced, remarried to a Catholic priest. We were both excommunicated from the church, da-da-da-da-da. And by then, people don't want to shake hands with me anymore because it's gone on way too long. And <laughs> first, they don't want me to touch them any longer. And then mm -hmm. they don't want to hear anymore. Yeah. And what I realized about 20, 15 years ago is that because of my perspective of being in the world, my ongoing, always and forever struggle with being adopted and uh, my Enneagram number, I do all that. So if you're going to go away, you'll go now. Right. Right. Like, I don't want you to find out anything later after I've grown in a relationship with you. So if Amen. these are the things that make you leave, then go now. That dog will hunt. Yes, like, it will right, hunt. Right. 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 Absolutely. I, I, I get it. Like I, in my own story, like I get it. Yep. Yep. So one of the things that happened the first time I read the soul of shame, not the fourth <laughs> I just, you know, I don't know what to tell you. Well, we're all being honest. I, I just read it the one time. <laughs> I, I didn't need a four. I, I, yeah, right. I, thanks, Joel. I, I'm, I, I, I like your attentiveness to the text and all the things. I also, it, however, I did get both the digital and the physical copy. Oh, so okay. There we go. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And you can always have, you can always have Suzanne just like photocopy and like, then you can have the paper and then you can read it that way too. Oh, oh we are super against that. No, but we gotta, we have to purchase our own copies of things. There's, yeah. Okay. We don't, photocopy, we don't photocopy books. We talk hmm. about shame and your work all the time. And here's hmm. why. Hmm. Any good self-awareness work hmm. Hmm. is going to be accompanied by shame. Hmm. I'm convinced of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The problem is that there are people like Joel who, because of how they see the world, don't know where shame is residing in their, in themselves or in the way of being in the world. And you were able to articulate that. So I have so many things that I want to talk about that I'm, I honestly don't know kind of where to go next. So I'm going to say two more things, then you can address all of it or do whatever you want to do. And, and one thing is, um, so just so you know, you can say like three or 10 more things. Cause I just enjoy listening to you and I can talk about the things you talk about. The thing that I'm most grateful for what's most important in my life right now is being a, the best parent that I can be mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and husband mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. all the things that I'm learning about this, about shame. Hmm. and doing my best to not pass it on my kids or on my wife it, all the all the little things Whitney are, has already started had already started teaching me about certain phrases that I would say to the kids around body image and hmm. that I was saying about myself that she's like here's what they're hearing hmm. and now that it's the same way with shame now the more that I'm learning about shame and my shame and where it's coming from and where it resides, then I can focus on not on passing that on as little as possible to my wife and kids. Mm -hmm.
-hmm. And the beauty thing, the beautiful thing too is, Joel, that even, I mean, the more we become, the more work we do at becoming aware that shame is in the room and active, mm -hmm. even when it happens, if I'm practicing becoming aware, I'm much more likely then to be aware when shame somehow, you know, invades the conversation, at which point I can then say, oh my gosh, I, I, I want to repair this rupture that's just happened. I'm going to go back and do that. And that, and that is really problematic for evil. Like more than anything, evil does not want us to be aware of things because the first, as soon as we're aware, you know, it's, it's just, it's just that much more aware of how numbered its days are. And so even, even when I make mistakes, right, this is the thing, Jesus is not worried about the mistakes that we make. He's too busy getting on with saying, well, let's repair the rupture, mm -hmm. right? Because like, oh, you know, remember the whole Good Friday resurrection thing, like the deal is done. We just now need to live into it. So this is what I want you to do. Let's live into it, mm -hmm. right? Evil would love me to make a mistake and then grovel in it turn away from it, feel mm -hmm. bad about the fact that I knew I should have done that differently. I didn't do that differently. Jesus is saying, well, of course you didn't do that well. Like, like we knew this from the beginning, like, and we still made you, like we knew this was coming and it's okay. Mm -hmm. I'm not worried about it. Let's get on with the business of repairing so that we see even more beauty emerge than was present before the rupture ever occurred. You started early on in the conversation, you mentioned the importance of presence, you know, we're talking about allowing and, and awareness mm -hmm. and the time to be aware is in the present moment and the importance of just being present. And as far as the Enneagram and helping three sevens and eights be in the present moment and not in the future, fours, fives and nines being in the present moment, not the past and at ones, twos and sixes to be intentionally in the present. I think that's a, full day workshop that you need to start right now. Well, I'll start right now then by saying that I think ones, twos, and sixes need to be fully aware in the present, but they need to be aware of themselves, not just other people. Because hmm. hmm. that would be full hmm. awareness. Hmm. 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 And hmm. Hmm. One, of, one of the most fun things that I think the three of us, fun is probably not the word, one of the things that it I think could be it, fun, it we'll could see. be you. Yeah. yeah. You may be able to work with us. It is that we all have a deep appreciation for and participation in confessional communities. Mm -hmm. I wrote that term down. I've, I've never heard of that right now. Whitney is sent. She's got an email going out to couple by couple that we know that live in our general area of getting together every other week uh, for what I'm pretty sure is what you're talking about. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is too. <laughs> you don't know about me probably that I grew up United Methodist and I was asked to teach theology, social issues and social justice, but it was a theology class in the high school where I started teaching a Catholic school. So I went to get 18 hours of theology from Perkins School of Theology so I could be appropriately credentialed to teach this really cool senior theology class. Mm -hmm. And in that process, I kind of got absorbed into the Catholic church. So I was Catholic for 10 years. Joe loves to say I was Catholic just long enough to get him, but that's really not how all that happened. And um, when I first went to confession, it was so freeing for me. I went every day. Uh-huh. Yeah. Every single day. And like, uh, finally, the priest said, uh, Suzanne, you, you can't come back for two weeks. Your penance is you cannot come back for two weeks. <laughs> because I was getting my forgiven and free, as Bob Dylan would have said, I was getting that from confessing every day. In the community of three, if you count the fact that God mm. was present with us, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I literally had never felt anything like that before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. 
Well, I mean, and I, you know, I highlight in this book that, you know, when, when we talk about confessional communities where that word, its usage is not limited to, you know, the confessing of sin. What we're really to, to confess is to name what is true about my life and about the world. And that is not just limited to my brokenness. It's also limited. It, it also includes my longings. It also includes what my desires are. And of course, this is tricky for us because if you're uh, if you ask anybody, well, what do you want? There are going to be a range of different responses, mm -hmm. a range of different comfort levels in even responding to the question. Mm -hmm. um, what is my desire? Well, is it? I didn't know I was allowed to have desires, or well, I'll tell you what my desire is as long as I know that what I'm telling you is the right answer to the question. Uh, am I? Uh, can you know? What, what are the things that I'm supposed to, that, that God wants me to want? And I'll, I'll, I'll answer that question. And for many of us, you know, the answer is, I'm not really sure. I don't know. Because my trauma and my shame and all my other coping strategies, my fear, my all the things have so either truncated or so buried my desire because it's so entangled neurobiologically with my shame. Mm-hmm that uh, I can't access it. Like I really can't that quickly. Now it doesn't mean that I can't ever access it, but I am more likely to access it in the context of a community in which I'm beginning to name other things about me, especially my shame. Because if I name the things about me that are ashamed, those things necessarily, the neural networks that represent that experience are also gonna pull with them as we untangle that those long dormant desires will start to emerge. And they do so indirectly as a function of what it means for us to tell my story more truly. And especially, and, and, but it doesn't do so always just because, oh, I now feel free to say what I want. It continues to be a function of other people asking me. What is it that you want? What mm -hmm. is it that you want? What mm -hmm. is it that you want? I need help. I need help from someone else to help pull my desire out of me and onto the table. I mm -hmm. need the presence of other people in order mm -hmm. for that to happen. Mm -hmm. And that becomes, you know, uh, an early step in the creative process of what is it that I now want to do to move toward this thing that I desire? What are the risks that I'm willing to take? And how can I begin to take those risks because I'm less frightened, because I'm in a connected community wherein which I've come to know what it means to be seen, soothed, safe, and now secure to go out and do the hard work of taking risks and making mistakes because I can come back to this community where I can once again be seen, soothed, and safe. And so you know, I, I love this notion that you're describing this, this whole, this whole notion that, right. I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, we're going to an AA meeting, but not everybody's an alcoholic there. Yeah. Um, I love that. And that's, that's a large part of what we are trying to do in these confessional communities is to really invite people to ask these, you know, four questions that we talk about in the book, uh, versions of that. Again, as I, as I say, they're not the only questions or even necessarily the best or most important questions, but they are, they happen to be four questions that, I think, um, speak to parts of our lives that are really important for us to be exploring. Yeah. Okay. Name the four questions. Cause everybody's going to ask Joel to send that to them and he'll just put it on the notes on the show notes. Right. So the four questions come there, there, there are four references that, you know, that of which God or Jesus speaks. The first question is, where are you? This is Genesis three, verse nine. Where are you that he speaks to Adam? This is a question that we can be asking of ourselves and asking of others. Where are we genuinely, right? And there are many different categories of how we answer, like not, not just geography, but in many different domains of our soul's geographic landscape. The second question is, what do you want? These are Jesus' first words in the Gospel of John. Really striking. Remember, a number of years ago, I'm reading like, you know, John 1, this like, I mean, I don't know that there's a more beautiful piece of literature, let alone scripture. The entirety, the first 18 verses of John chapter one, you know, of John chapter one. And then you get to verse 38. Jesus is having this conversation with John the Baptist's disciples who come after him. And, you know, it's just striking to me. This is, you know, there are other translations that say, what are you looking for? But it's a similar kind of thing. Like, what do you want? 
And you notice their response being one of like, well, maybe this is how you, you know, you're supposed, this is the proper posture toward a rabbi. You don't like really just answer that question directly. That would be too disrespectful, mm -hmm. perhaps. But I think that we get the sense that Jesus is really quite serious as he asks us this question. He really wants to mm -hmm. know this. And of course, he's going to take them, he's going to take what they're willing to give him, right? Where, do you, where are you living? Where are you staying? Okay, I guess you're not going to answer my question directly. We'll get mm -hmm. to that maybe eventually. But this is a serious, what do we want? Because I think at the end of the day, he's going to continue to ask us layer upon layer upon layer this question. And if we really get to the point where we're able to say, what I really want is you. Mm -hmm. And what I really want is to live as I was made to live. I was really, I want to be connected so that I can create beauty and goodness in the world. And he says, great, come on, let's do this. Then he asks the next question. Question number three is, can you drink this cup? Yeah, there's, that's the hard one. <laughs> yep. Because if we're going to do this work, we need to recognize that we do not live in a neutral universe. That evil is has no intention of going quietly into the night. And to the degree that we are serious about following Jesus, serious about regeneration, serious about practicing for heaven, evil is going to up its game. Mm -hmm. And it is going to, and, and in order for us to uh, do this creative work, it's going to mean we're going to suffer. Now I, I, I suffer. There's a lot of my suffering that comes at my own hand and has come at my own hand for almost 60 years. But there will be the end, another kind of suffering that comes when I decide that I'm going to offload that. Like there is a certain suffering, like picking up my cross in some respects means I'm going to choose to no longer agree with the narrative that I've told about myself all these years. Mm -hmm. And there is a certain suffering in like not doing that, right? Yeah. The suffering that says like, no, I'm not going to eat the sleeve of cookies. I'm just going to eat one or two cookies. I'm the, 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 you know, the mint Oreos, they, they, they are a cookie of which a sleeve deserves to be eaten. At any given time, no, I'm not going to, you know, I'm just going to just two cookies. I'm not going to look at the pornography. I'm not going to like gossip about this person. I'm not going uh, to, whatever it is. Yeah. There's a certain suffering with that. There's a suffering that's going to come because you're going to want to press into relationships in ways that are going to make other people uncomfortable. And they're not going to like you for this. Look, if they'll kill Jesus, they'll kill anybody. <laughs> right? We'll do that. right. So there's suffering that comes in a lot of different ways. And then the last question is, when, if, if we're, if we're, if we're going to, if we're going to, yes, we're going to, we're, we're going to sign on the line, right? All mm -hmm. of the, you know, and we're, we're going to, we're going to suffer. Then Jesus asked this question of Peter that we mentioned before, do you love me? Mm -hmm. And we need to recognize that this is a question of hope and expectation. This is not a question of condemnation. This is not a question of critique. He is not the proctor getting Peter to turn in his exam, looking for the opportunity to put the big red ink marks all over the paper. This is Jesus in the course of what we might call the sanctification process. He's coming for us every day and saying, do you love me? And I'm going to say, well, sure I do. While the whole time there is a part of me in the back of my head that says, well, except for this part and except for this part and except for this part. And he's saying, well, I'm just going to keep asking you until we get to that part. Mm -hmm. Because I'm not going to leave any stone unturned. Like there's going to be no, none of this shame. We're not going to leave any of it. Because you're not going to be able to live in my heaven if you decide that you want to keep that. So I'm coming for all of it. And so that whole notion of, do you love me is really then followed. This is what we must remember is always follow with. I have work for you to do. Mm -hmm. Feed my sheep. Yep. Create your podcast. You um, said, I hate it when somebody starts with that with me. <laughs> it's like when somebody says, well, you said, I think, oh, what did I say? So just so you know, you wrote this, so it's edited. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Different deal. God sees us not as problems to be solved or broken objects to be repaired, but beauty on the way to being formed. Right. I believe that the confessional communities are places where both things can be held. You got to answer the questions. They're messy and you got to answer them because there's stuff for you to do, not because you'll just feel so much better mm -hmm. if you answer the questions. Mm -hmm. And it's all good because God loves you. And as Joe, my Joe says, you can't 
get do anything to get God to love you less and you can't do anything to get God to love you more. And as you say, we are not problems to be solved or broken objects to be repaired, but beauty on the way to being formed. If people can hear that, shame is thinner, I think. Well, and I, and I think, you know, that, that's, that's a statement that you're, we are, we are beauty on the way to being formed. And that statement is intended to ignite our imagination. Yeah. And I would have to say that, like, I'm, I would like, I'm, I'm tempted, I, I want to believe that. The challenge is that the payload density of my neural networks that I have practiced for most of my six decades still have me being a disease process to be yep. fixed, yep. right? And so this is where, again, the confessional community in real time and space becomes the engine that's going to pull the train mm -hmm. because it's not just a theological or anthropological idea that we are beauty on the way to being formed. I can only know this viscerally in my chest by looking at you, looking at me. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to have to, I, I have to let myself be seen by Suzanne and by Joel and allow myself to live in that moment mm -hmm. and let my brain, let, let my brain, let it take up residence in me. You know, one of the things that we do in our groups that we, we, we will frequently do, you know, people will have a moment where of, of, of you know, being seen. Mm -hmm. And we see that it's happening. And when we see that it's happening, one of the things we'll do, we will pause and we will say, I just want everybody just to sit with this moment. We're going to do this on purpose. So to your points, what was mm -hmm. it? Uh, two, six, and seven, like we have to be someplace on purpose, right? We're going to be yep. present. One, two, to six. Our, right, right. Every number, on, but one, two, six right now. Yeah. Right, one, two, six. Right, we're going to be present to this moment because I want you to pay attention to literally, I want you to encode this. And tonight and every day for the next seven days until we come back again to meet next week, I want you to take five to 10 minutes, quiet yourself, close your eyes, and I want you to replay this moment. I want you to write it down. I want you to describe it. I want you to describe explicitly where in your body do you feel it? Where, how do you feel the relief mm -hmm. coming? How do you feel like whose gaze? is looking at you that you're finding whose tears are like, I want you to ingest, digest, metabolize this. We ingest in a few seconds. We digest in a few hours. We metabolize for the rest of our life. And this is the way that we are formed. And it must be done in a way when I'm doing it in a community, like we, I, I, this notion that, you know, shame you know, if, if you were, I say, like, if you're standing on your sidewalk and you look up, this would be odd, I realize, but if you were to look up and to notice that you're being approached by an empty little red radio flyer wagon at three miles per hour, you would simply put your foot out and stop the wagon. Mm -hmm. If you were standing on a railroad track and you look up to find that you're being approached by a locomotive at three miles an hour, you couldn't do a thing about it, but it's not the velocity. It's the mass. Mm. Shame is like a locomotive. It's not like a red wagon. And in order to stop that, we need a bigger train. And the bigger train is the community and the embodied experience that we have. This is the body of Jesus. This is the body of Christ. This is what the church is intended to be about. We mm. form each other, not just theologically or in the abstract we literally form each other in our embodied presences by taking in others gazes others words others nonverbal all the things that then go on to help make romans five six seven and eight make it make so much more sense mm -hmm. first we sense then we make sense of what we sense and if we try to do it the other way around Ultimately, if we don't sense it, it won't functionally make sense for us. Sooner or later, 
we'll even decide that like, yeah, the theology doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because I'm an eye journal. Um, mm -hmm. I'm a journaler. Mm -hmm. And um, we started this conversation with me telling you that I felt seen mm -hmm. in Florida mm -hmm. when we first met. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I journaled about that. And mm. I journaled about it for several days after that, unaware that I was in this process of holding the moment that you just mm. described mm -hmm. for everybody. And the, the mm -hmm. thing that's so important about that from my perspective and from an Enneagram perspective is that when those moments occur, if you don't revisit those for seven days, if you don't do something with that on a regular basis, your personality is so big. Your Enneagram-ness is so big. Mm -hmm. It will take mm -hmm. over right away. Right, right. It, it, will, it will pull you right back to where you were before you got together that night. Mm -hmm. Right, right. It, it, it just that it is that big, it, it seems to me. Yeah. You and I were writing books during COVID, hmm. Hmm. which hmm. kept me very busy. And hmm. by the quality of your work, I'm suspecting you too, because you wrote a fine hmm. book. Hmm. And thanks. Hmm. Um, other people didn't necessarily have a project like that that kept them tethered to something mm -hmm. that had a future and a present and a past. Mm -hmm. And um, Laura, who works with us, sent me an article one morning and she said, I think this is what I'm feeling. And it was about languishing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And languishing didn't seem to have a, a, a future that looked like it had value to me, like longing does. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm very taken with your understanding of longing. Mm. I think languishing could be its dark side, mm. potentially. Mm. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I wouldn't want to go away from this conversation that the two of us have had a chance to begin until we get together again, mm -hmm. without saying, talk a little bit about longing, because I'm convinced that people have been longing for so much that they can't have mm -hmm. because of the constraints of a global pandemic, mm -hmm. that longing is going to fall on hard times. And as you say, quote, I'm quoting you, longing is who we are. Mm -hmm. So would you close us today and this conversation by talking about that? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I would say, uh, you know, as, as has been written a long, long time ago, um, there's nothing new under the sun. And this space in which we find ourselves in the middle of COVID is not new. We are not the first to... Uh, be drawn into, tempted into, traumatized into languishing. And I think that even when I was writing the book, uh, and then as, and then when the when the pandemic hit, uh, you know the the um, Israelite exile into Babylon, and and the prophet Jeremiah uh spoke really brightly and powerfully at least to me and you know there were all kinds of reactions that the hebrews you know expressed everything from oh this is going to be a short thing right it's only going to last you know nebuchadnezzar is going to come and you know it's not going to be that big of a deal and then it was a big deal well this is only going to last six weeks i mean we're going to we might go there for a little while, but we'll come back. And like, then it became clear that no, we're not coming back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And an entire generation and or more mm -hmm. was going to find itself in a land it didn't understand, didn't know. And I think that, I, I think that that story, uh, it spoke to me and God was very clear when he said, you're going to go to a place that you didn't want to go to. 
And this is like, you know, being in Egypt, this is a recapitulation of Egypt. And you'll be tempted to languish. You'll be tempted, and, and, and your languishing has everything to do with what your expectation is. You expect to come home. And because you're not coming home, you languish. You don't languish just because of where you are. You languish because of what your expectation is. You expect that your life should be a certain way. And what I'm telling you is you are where you are. I want you to build houses, plant your gardens, get married, give your kids away in marriage, do multi-generational things and pray mm -hmm. for the peace of the city. I want you to live where you are. I want you to create now you thought that the only way that this, that this creation, you thought that like it was all about you. And now that y'all are in Jerusalem and you have Israel and the nation and blah, blah, blah. You think like, as if like, this is your personal project. This is not your project. This, this project of creation and new creation. This is my project. And not that, that God would be saying it so harshly to us, but what he's saying is like, I want you not to languish by paying attention to where you are and creating where you are. Now, uh, as I've said, uh, you know, when the pandemic first hit, I, I wrote about a half dozen essays that were reflecting on some of these things uh, that folks can find on my website. And one of the things I said is that, look, the pandemic, and, and I'm, I'm not the only one, many people have said this, that the pandemic was not just causal, it was revealing, mm -hmm. right? Our languishing that we now sense isn't caused by the pandemic. It is a direct result of everything that was happening with us and about us before the pandemic ever arrived. Mm -hmm. And so... When the curtain is pulled back and we, and we are revealed to be who we are, then we have to decide, am I going to live as I have been made to live? Or do I still expect to be able to live the way I was living before the pandemic hit? Exactly. And so my languishing has a lot to do with my expectations and my expectations that like I should be able to live the way I was living, mm -hmm. in which we might say, no, I don't think that any of us, this is, a, we're, we're, we should be living the way we're living. This is like, I just want things to be the way they were six months ago before I got depressed. No. And so what does this mean? It does mean, and this is where I think this question of what you, what you are getting after with, and what we're talking about with these confessional communities, this notion of, first of all, who are going to be the people, the one or two or three people mm -hmm. to whom you are going to reveal your life and your story and to whom you are going to allow them to reveal to you. Joel, I think about what you and your wife are going to do about these, about these couples, right? I mean, you know, Many people who agree to do these kinds of things, like they have no idea what they're entering into until they find that they're ankle and then, you know, knee and then waist deep. And they're like, holy cow, like, what are we doing? Like, I'm now I'm telling my story and it's scaring the living daylights out of me. And, and then, but we're, if nobody leaves the room, mm -hmm. we discover that healing and recommissioning comes in ways that I never before could have reimagined. And so it requires, first of all, who are going to be the people? It's not what am I going to do as an individual, is who are the people that I'm going to do it with, whatever the yep. with is. Yep. Who are they going to be? What am I going to do to create? And you might say, like, gosh, I don't have any energy to create. I'm not thinking like, well, if you were to tell your story to someone else, and we have this kind of storytelling liturgy that we you know, have for these confessional communities, but if you were to tell your story to someone else, you would actually be creating something right then and there. Cause I can guarantee you that if you have a listener who's paying attention to you in the way that we are encouraging people to do that, we talk about in this book, I can guarantee you that what you think your story is, is going to be transformed by the very act of your telling it. Yep. And in that regard, new creation is already happening because the Holy spirit is in the middle of this. You are not doing this by yourself. Mm -hmm. And so I'm actually really quite, hopeful and we would say like bring your languishing to the to the table bring it to the room mm -hmm. and say i'm languishing and then we're going to start to ask some questions well tell me where you are like you say you're i'm well i'm languishing well what does that mean what does it mean that you're languishing that's a word that you're using what do you sense what do you image what do you feel what do you think what are you doing every day with your like what are you getting out and exercising are you going to your neighbor's house and saying is there anything that i can do to pray for you about mm-hmm right carl menninger the famous psychiatrist from topeka who was a believer when asked for his depressed patients, what's the first thing that you tell them to do? He said, the first thing is, if you're depressed, you leave your house, you go off to your porch, you go find somebody else who's less fortunate than you, and you ask them what you can do to help them. And that's going to change your mind. Yep. And so we want to know who are the people that we can then be connected with, with whom we can ask these questions, Yes. wherein which we can begin to create. And also recognizing that neuroplastic change does not happen overnight. The Hebrews went to Babylon for 70 years. They didn't go for 70 days, not for seven <laughs> weeks. They went for 70 years. 
look, I'm discovering things in the last 12 months and I'm thinking, what the heck? Why, why am I only learning now at 58, 59? Like, why didn't I learn this when I was 18 and 19? Like there would have been so many other decisions I would have made differently. Like, and you can imagine, I can imagine the Holy Trinity saying, well, Kurt, it's a good question. Actually, when you were 18 and 19, we actually did try to have that conversation with you a couple of times, but we noticed that you weren't quite ready then. And we tried again when you were in your 30s and you weren't really quite ready then. And, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Okay. Okay. That's a long minute answer to your question. It's such a good answer, though. You are a, a treasure. Thank oh. you for sharing time mm. on our podcast and i know that people are going to respond by saying we want more and mm. you've already said we can do more so mm. it's just a scheduling mm. matter now yes ma'am but thank you for your time today thank you for your new book the soul of desire mm. thank you for the soul of shame i mm. they are companion pieces i am mm. so thankful that nobody warned you not to sign a two book deal <laughs> Oh my gosh. What a beautiful thing to say. It's a gift for everybody. Thank you. Blessings, friend. Can't wait till Thank next you. time. My pleasure.